everybody, Matt Geary here with the Geek Pride cast on this Monday evening. With me tonight, as always, we have my guest, not my guest host, my co-host, my guest host. That's why we haven't done this for so long, Pete, this whole fortnightly I've thing. I've demoted. My co-host, Peter Ray Allison. Good evening, everyone. And our special guest tonight, Mike Mason. Hello. So, Mike, who are you? What do you do? What's your thing? Um, well, <laughs> there's many answers to that. Um, I am, um, for my sins, the um, creative director for the Call of Cthulhu tabletop role-playing game at Chaosium. And um, so uh, for many years, I have been um, basically developing the Call of Cthulhu DTRPG line. So that's developing books, writing books, editing books, and um, producing them into the you know the gaming tables of the world. That's kind of um, my gig, I guess. Okay. I mean, am, am I correct in thinking Call of Cthulhu was the very first horror role-playing game? Yeah, te- technically, you know, a horror role-playing game in terms of what it was actually called, a horror role-playing game, then yes, Call of Cthulhu was the first... Uh, the first horror playing game, yeah, yeah. Because previously, you know, you've had fantasy, you've had sci-fi, yeah, and some other variations, but it was the first to kind of say, no, this is a horror um, role playing game. I'm just uh, showing uh, the uh, all the different. You got uh, all the rules, scenarios, down, darker yeah. tales, pulp Cthulhu, call call Cthulhu wiki. Yeah, I mean, I remember playing Call of Cthulhu way back in the late 80s. That, that was my first, uh, but no, but my third role-playing game I ever played. And it was completely different to anything I ever played at the time because you had a san- sanity mechanic, which just blew my mind. No, sure. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the, um, it works very differently to many, many role-playing games, even still. I mean, we celebrated its 40th anniversary a year or so ago, it came out around Halloween 1981. And um, when it came out, it was certainly something quite different. Um, it wasn't about um, building tough characters and levelling up and fighting monsters and getting treasure and getting more powerful. It was actually the complete reverse of that. You started off um, weak, normal humans and you basically then got worse. So basically, you know, you you, you kind of you know, suffered suffered the slings and arrows uh, of uh, your adventures. And um, if you know you were lucky, you kind of survived to tell the tale and recuperate. Or maybe you know you made the ultimate sacrifice, and by doing that, you saved humanity or your hometown or your family or whatever it may be. So it was very much the antithesis of of that kind of you know. Um, hoarding and levelling up kind of um, style of role play, which obviously had come before and continues to this day. I mean, it's, it's not uh, necessarily um, one's better than the other, but um, certainly for me, it it was the kind of game I was looking for that didn't exist at the time, um, that was more about actually telling really interesting and engaging stories rather than just how powerful I could get my character to be. So that, that kind of engaged with me. And I think it still resonates with many people. You know, it's like, uh, like I often say, airfix models, 
you either love making them or you don't and it's fine whichever one camp you fall into and it's the same for games like Call of Cthulhu you either like horror and enjoy that kind of horror experience or you don't and that's fine there are plenty of other games for you to enjoy if that's the case I have to say we had um we played a Call of Cthulhu one shot um many many moons ago uh for the we we, we streamed it um Ben um MP did our, our DM for it. Now, this was something for me that was completely like like you said. I'm used to the whole RPG where I'm the I'm the badass warrior hero who's sort of starting up and sort of becoming stronger and better with sort of kind of shenanigans in between and stuff. And then I'm basically given this sort of chance to be a character who is basically an old an old sort of war because uh, I kind of want to be a soldier still but I'm like I'm older and I'm not as strong and I'm not as sort of kind of I've got a, you know my best that was my history and um, it's all this stuff and it, it's it's it was it, it was completely different this experience than from playing D&D but I really really enjoyed it more so because of the, the, the narrative to it and the fact that basically knowing stuff in Call of Cthulhu is a bad idea because you go crazy if you know shit and stuff and it's just like you know you you know too much and then you go crazy and by the end of the by the end of the thing it was like it was really well done and by the end of it we were in this house and we had to sort of kind of basically stop this beast from summoning and i went crazy and i was like holding this thing you know in it like uh, some sort of um like ritual and we were all trying to keep this ritual to keep this monster from sort of kind of appearing i went mad which stopped it and if it weren't for the fact that one of the other guys had also gone mad to the point where he didn't care only he cared about himself and then he argued that well because i care about myself wouldn't i for self-preservation wise keep this going so (laughs) that you know as much you know at the end, when it's gone, it's fine. I'm just going to bugger off, and I don't care. But obviously, I'm not going to just run and let this thing kind of because it's not going to. It's going to hurt me, and that happens. And so he kind of saved the day by being selfish in a weird way. And it was it was so good. It was really well done, and uh, it was a completely different experience uh, from any other RPG I've ever played. Yeah, I mean, they, one of the the beautiful <laughs> why um, it appeals to many people is because it, it works so well as a one-shot game you can have a long campaign playing you know some other system or game uh, where you're you know heavily invested and in all get but but you know but the best one in the world humans we don't we don't like to do one thing all the time forever and ever and ever so it's nice to take a break or when you come to a natural kind of break in a game between you know campaign chapters or you take a you know somebody's away for a week so you want to run something different you know um and so cathedral has worked very well it's a kind of a one-shot game but it's such a broad kind of game that you know it does that really well but also it works really well as a campaign game conversely so actually doing a, a kind of a a long campaign where you are, you know, um, developing your characters uh, and getting deeper and deeper into some form of mystery or, or, or situation, um, you know, works really well as well. Because as you say, it's very much a, a plot story based game. And um, while, you know, and it's really about the story, it's your version of the stories, you know, there's a kind of an outline plot that you are kind of engaging with through the keeper, the GM. But it's really telling your version of the story. Well, how do you do it? Because obviously how your group 
tackles that story and how it ends, like the example you just said about how, how it came to an end, is unique to you and your group, like you know, like most role-playing experiences. But because there is such a strong narrative thread with the characters and the and their engagement with the plot, it kind of does resonate, you know, very well in that in that way. And so people often share their memories of their gaming experience with the Call of Cthulhu with me. You know, I remember the time when we were we saved the world by because John blew up a penguin or whatever it might be. I don't, you know, some crazy thing that I wouldn't have heard of. But um, but in their game was you know. It was that was the crunch point, you know. So uh, and uh, so it was amazing hearing all these kind of kind of war stories that kind of come out of Call of Cthulhu play because um, they kind of have a real kind of it's like it's almost like uh, the role playing equivalent of a really good novel. You know, you kind of get into a novel and you tell your you know your version of it in a sense. Oh yeah, I can, yeah I, sorry, Pete, carry on. No, I was going to say like no, I think Call of Cthulhu was one of the first games that kind of really invested players with investigation rather than combat i mean in call of cthulhu game a library skill is far more um useful than say a pistol or it can be it it, it depends i mean yeah i mean yeah absolutely true your your kind of character skills um (laughs) really kind of um help to push the gameplay in certain directions and again you know you can play call of cthulhu as a very combat heavy kind of style of game if that's what you want to do but um, it is set up to be more, a little bit more kind of in, informed by the real world around us. And it's like, you know, you don't go shopping in town and there's fights breaking out every five seconds, do you? You know, fights are actually quite rare. So in, in the Call of Cthulhu game world, you know, you have to want to get into a fight to do it. Most of the time, your characters are far more sensible to avoid fighting or run away at the first sight of it. And then come back better prepared or find a different way to tackle the situation without necessarily resorting to violence. Yeah, because like, like, again, like, so like fleeing was generally the most the combat option of most players in Call of Cthulhu. Oh, it's a, um, what do you call it, a, a Cthulhu. Oh, it's a, a Hounded Tundras. Run. What's your sure. action? Run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we when we did it, we had like a small altercation on a train with a, a with a cultist of some sort. I think which sort of led us to this sort of house that we were sort of uh, uh, going to deal with. But uh, apart from that, it was literally just sort of us playing against ourselves, effectively, because we were like a bunch of guys who didn't know each other, and we had different all, all sort of reasons we were going to do do things. And um, yeah, it was I I really enjoyed it. Just a completely different, completely different. The um, the other thing that sometimes surprises people if they're coming from a different, you know, um, more conventional kind of role playing game where you start weak but you quite rapidly kind of get more powerful and as in you get you know you get harder to kill basically. You may get more hit points or wounds or whatever it would be. In Call of Cthulhu, you 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 roll up your hit points to start and they they really never change. So. You know, the average human, let's say, is on somewhere between 10 to 12 hit points. And uh, in the game, like in real life, somebody sticks a sword through you or points a gun at you, shoots um, one bullet and one sword thrust can kill your character, just like in real life. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, and so that makes players wary of combat for, you know, rightly, you know, so um, because, uh, it, you know, humans are fragile in the game. So, um, so that kind of builds that layer of, um, it, well, it, it kind of gets rid of a layer of complacency that my character can just, is bulletproof, can just walk into anything and take over anything. It's not that kind of game. 
Yeah. And also, since it's set in the 1920s, when medical care was is far less advanced than it is now, we don't have like you know, the first aid or you know medical facilities that we have. So sure. healing becomes a major factor. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, 1920s is the kind of core setting for the game. But um, even in the the kind of the 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 current editions rule book, there's rules for the modern day as well. So, I mean, there's a lot of people who like to play in the modern day. But even still, you know, um, with advances in, in medicine, as you say, that there's more opportunity to survive potentially. But still, at the end of the day, if you're at the side of a mountain in the middle of the wilderness and get an injury, whether it's the modern day or the 16th century, whichever <laughs> setting you're playing in Call of Cthulhu, it's still going to be pretty bad news for your character, probably. Yeah. You said, like, oh, Call of Cthulhu like, was released over just over 40 years. How has the game changed in that time? Because there have been several editions of the game released. Though. Yeah, so um, up until, well, uh, about eight years ago, uh, there'd been six editions of the games or variations on six editions of the game. And there hadn't been particularly any great changes to the game. There had been some little tweaks here and there. Uh, but the biggest change really came from first to second edition where some, you know, uh, a few things were, were ironed out. I think in the original first edition of the game, you could never regain sanity points. Whereas in second edition, they brought in the fact that, you know, if you do well and you can kind of, you know, win over the the, the bad guys, the mythos, you can kind of get some semblance of your, uh, you know, life back. And so some sanity points back. So other than that, there have been very minor tweaks. Um, so with 7th edition, which is the current Call of Cthulhu, um, we actually introduced some um, some wider changes, some more kind of streamlining. So the game remained the same and you were using the same kind of roles, but we actually introduced some more kind of um, variation into the game. So uh, it used to be, because uh, it uses the percentile system based on Chaosium's basic roleplay system. So uh, using a D100 dice to roll under a, under a number. So for instance, you making a climb roll and you have 50% in climb, you need to roll 50 or lower on your percentile dice. Uh, and in first or sixth edition, it was basically a, a pass or fail roll. Um, you either did it or you didn't, so pass or fail. So in um, seventh edition, we introduced degrees of success. So um, you can actually, there's like a regular success, uh, there's a hard success and there's an extreme success, which actually to kind of gradiate the the levels really to kind of because it allowed you to sort of say okay when you want to climb the wall but it's climb but you're climbing in a heavy rain it's actually harder than normal so you need a hard success like a half value success um, so things like that we kind of introduced we kind of streamlined combat to become an opposed role rather than a you go I go which normally meant you miss I miss you miss I miss and we'd all stand there in combat for 10 minutes hit, missing each other, um, <laughs> which isn't particularly like real life. Um, so we made that a com uh, an opposed role. So it was more likely that something would happen every round. And again, that not only streamlines things, but it also speeds up combat as well. Um, so things like that um, and introduced um, uh, pushing the role, uh, which allows you to kind of have a second attempt at the skill role that you failed but only if you can justify what additional resource or risk you're taking to 
attempt that role. And if you fail a pushed role, the outcome is worse than just a straight failure because you put more into it. There's more chance of something going wrong if you fail it. So it was kind of echoes and builds on the kind of the idea of this is a horror game with tension. So it increases the tension. And if you fail the role, then your character is in a worse situation than where they were before, which again is kind of um, standard for a kind of a horror film or a horror book. You know, somebody does something that doesn't work, they tend to be in a worse situation going forwards. So it kind of mirrors those kind of things. So there's a number of, a number of rules. So it's probably the biggest kind of translation into um, the new rule set from the old, although uh, it is completely backwards compatible with material that's been published over the last 40 years so one of the one of the key things we maintained was you know you can just pick up a, an adventure written in 1982 and run it with seventh edition with some very minor on the fly adjustments you can make once you once you um you know you know what you're doing because yeah, the core stats of each of the characters npcs and creatures remains essentially the same it's just you just tweak the rule system to yeah the, 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 the numbers would look a little different in that the as i said it's a percentile system so all your skills are percentiles but um just harkening back to the old days your your characteristics your strength and dexterity and that were all three to 18 numbers uh, and when you needed to roll them you would multiply that number by five to make it a percentile to then roll in the game. So in seventh edition, we just did away with that and just made them percentiles. So they so they like the skills. So you'd have to go. What, what do I do with an eighteen? How do I roll that? Well, it's already done for you. You got to you know roll under the percentile number. So that's the only difference. But again, once you know that, when you look at a an old scenario, you just know I'll just times up by five if I need to make a roll. Nine times you don't need to make a roll. So it's uh, academic. Okay. How long have you been involved with the Call of Cthulhu line? Um, well, um, in terms of working with Chaosium kind of full time for, for um, I think it's um, coming up to nine, nine and a half, maybe, maybe even 10. I think it's around nine and a half. I can't remember, about nine and a half years. Prior to that, um, I kind of work with Chaosium in a freelance capacity every now and again. I mean, I started working with Chaosium back in the, trying to think now, mid to late 1990s. Um, I'd done a few freelance bits of editorial <laughs> work with them over the years. Um, and um, so I've got, I guess I've got a long relationship with the company, but it didn't become kind of formalised until uh, as i say about nine nine and a half years ago oh wow and yeah i mean i mean, was interested like how you kind of become involved in the role-playing industry as a writer i mean like how does kind of like as a writer like myself i like, kind of get involved and start writing for the industry um i think you uh, there's two well there's two ways it tends to fall either you are writing for somebody else's game or you are writing your own game and they're both kind of got different kind of um, swings and roundabouts with them. Um, if you're writing your own game, it's a, it's potentially a little harder. It's probably easier now than it's ever been because obviously um, you now have the capability to produce something at home on desktop publishing. You can produce a PDF, you can get it on drive-through, and you can start selling it as soon as you're able. Obviously, you've got all the the work of getting it together, but you know that's now in your hands to do. So the, the gateway in, in that sense, is, is certainly the, the, the bar to entry is much lower than it's ever been, which is really good. Um, 
but um, uh, in terms of uh, established role-playing companies, um, either you uh, bring them a game that they don't have, there's something in their portfolio that they have a gap. Um, so, for instance, there's a there's a role-playing company and they don't do anything science fiction, but maybe they would like to, and you turn up with, I've got an idea for a science fiction game, here's how it would work, kind of thing, and they're interested. Then maybe, you know, they, they kind of uh, bring you in in some capacity to publish this kind of gap in their system, although that's harder to do because there's not many gaps in, in, in most established role-playing companies. But um, the kind of standard way otherwise is, is kind of through freelance work. So, um, developing um, your skills and your reputation with a particular company you basically establish a relationship with one or more companies in that way and I uh, can show that you can deliver work on time to a certain standard uh, and um, I guess you know they put the work out and it sells reasonably well so they you know they think this is good um, and so invite you back to do more basically so uh, but again, it's about establishing a relationship and, and um, actually delivering. So, you know, there's many, plenty of people who want to be writers, whether it's for role playing games or screenplays or novels or whatever, but never actually write. So step one is actually well, you need to actually write something. And if you get past that, then then you're then you're flying, really, um, because um, it really it really just comes down to, you know, saying you're going to do something by a certain date you know being able to work to a deadline being able to communicate with you know your editor uh, and um and being able to take constru constructive criticism on board um because um you know there are always some people that don't like criticism and find it really hard to um you know accept that and that becomes can become an issue if the publisher wants to kind of make some changes um, for various reasons and if you're not on board with that that makes the relationship difficult and so that publisher is unlikely to want to work with you again because it's about a it's about bringing the best best resources together to make the best product and you know you're one component in that product not the, not the entirety of it because there's artwork as well as well as all the kind of layout and everything else that goes into it um, so being able to kind of you know work with criticism being able to deliver on time and being able to come up with some cool role play game experiences on paper um, are the ingredients in whatever kind of way you want to approach it. But as I say, the bar to entry is is, is wide open now. We you know with um, with community content programs. I mean, Chaosium's got community content programs like the Miskatonic Repository for Cthulhu, the Johnstown Compendium for RuneQuest, and and uh, um, uh, the, the 7C one, there's going to be a Pendragon one fairly soon. Uh, you've got the D&D &D version of you know, their community program as well as many other companies doing this you know, through things like drive-thru where you can write something and get it up there without any, any interference. So you know, I encourage people to do that because it's great experience. It gets your name out there, gets your, gets your material exposure and um, you know there are people that have uh done that kind of thing through our community programs who we've kind of like spotted and gone that's you that's really good what they've done there i think that'd be really interesting if we could maybe invite them to do something directly for us now maybe so it does you know it does provide a window 
and an opportunity into into um, the companies you know who support these community programs as well. And certainly, there's a, there's a whole bunch of writers uh, that I've gone on to commission to to write specific things for for Chaosium to publish. Um, and so, you know, it's it, it's a, a kind of I guess a proven potential way in, you know, in, in that sense. So, you know, ultimately though is know what you want to write you know decide you know what's the what's the game you want to write for and learn about it you know read read what they published not what they published 30 years ago what they published this year because that's what they're interested in, in terms of what what's their format what's their style how do they how do they put information across because each game will do it differently and um you know know the rules and be able to apply them in your writing and then all those kind of things, all tick boxes when someone like me is looking at a manuscript going, considering whether it's something we would want to publish. You know, there's a, there's lots of you know reasons I can say yes and lots of reasons I can say no. And obviously the more <laughs> that you tick, as in, yes, you can spell, yes, tick, yes, you can write a sentence, tick. Yes, you understand this is called Call of Cthulhu, tick. You understand the rules, tick. You've actually used a template very similar to what we use when we publish scenarios, tick. So all these things stack up to a point where you go, well, actually, this person knows what they're doing. You know, this is this yeah. is good stuff. And so um, that's, you know, that's the real kind of um, key, really. But, but you know, we, we, we have a very kind of open door policy on submissions. Um, you know, we don't accept many, but we do have, you know, anyone can send uh, a submission in and uh, anyone can send you know, publish their stuff on the repository as well. So, you know, it's very kind of open and we want to encourage, you know, new writers and diverse voices to kind of, you know, fill out this, this the gaming space because um, it's all, you know, it's, it, it creates good experiences on the table, which is what we're about, really. I imagine writing Call of Cthulhu has a very specific tone of requirements. Like, the, it's a very kind of specific flavour to a Call of Cthulhu game, isn't there? It, well, it can be, but I mean, obviously, with a game that's 40 years old, um, we also don't want it to be too uh, prescriptive, because otherwise it becomes very samey, and, you know, in that case, there's only so many haunted house stories you, you what people are going to want to buy, let alone play. Um, so we are, you know, whilst there is some kind of, you know, old chestnuts that are always kind of, you know, always interesting, we do look for kind of innovation and a bit of creativity, and that includes kind of style and tone, because sometimes it's nice to kind of have something a little different. Obviously, there's core tenets of the game. You know, there's there's kind of there's um, you know some form of mystery usually, some kind of you know kind of mystery you need to kind of understand and get into and solve. And normally, there's some sort of you know element of the Cthulhu mythos, whether that be some sort of human tampering with forces they shouldn't be, some alien eldritch kind of monster from beyond, or some strange, you know, alien-like magic, or whatever it may be, is obviously built in there as well. But Cthulhu is a very broad church in terms of what it can do as a system. So equally, if somebody signed up with a really cool and imaginative survival horror scenario that isn't a mystery much more kind of action orientated and and so on then then well you know why not why not look at that as well because again people want to kind of have different experiences at the gaming table and change 
you know, the style of game as they play. Because again, not everyone wants to play a mystery every week. Sometimes it's nice to you know, you know, fight the zombies and survive the night or whatever it may be. Um, so, you know, while there is a a kind of a, a kind of a base a baseline for Call of Cthulhu in that kind of sense of a a, a mystery and investigation, um, it's always nice to break the rules as well sometimes. And so, coming up with novel ways to kind of look at that is is you know something I look for in submissions somebody's doing something a little different or has got a new spin on an old idea uh it's always worth a look talk about okay. I, I saw a um i was just looking at i've just been looking at the website and uh what you did i didn't realize you did hero quest well you did until two uh, a couple of years back when hasbro sort of obviously took over the license but i didn't realize you did a, a hero quest rpg yeah there was a there, yeah i mean this this goes back many many years but um there was a time when um, uh, RuneQuest was actually um, sold and, and held by a, a different company for a while. Uh, and so uh, Greg and the team of Chaosium at the end of the day wanted to kind of um, do a new kind of version of RuneQuest to some degree. And so HeroQuest was born. Um, and, um, and so there's a kind of a, a, a kind of a more freeform style of game um but based on the kind of request mechanics and now that's kind of evolved over time to be a kind of a more generic system that we can used for different kind of skins and, and variations of of start of game and themes um and so yeah so um hero quest was originally kind of a part of casium and then um uh that kind of also got attached to the hero quest board game which has got nothing to do with us but uses the same name and so uh, eventually we we kind of had an agreement where those guys could they wanted to relaunch the HeroQuest board game so we kind of let them kind of carry on with that name and we changed the name of HeroQuest to OpenQuest which actually suits it better because it is a very open system and you don't have to do fantasy with it you can do you know other sorts of other sorts of styles of game with that as well so we've got a, a hero uh, an open quest system uh, which is um I'm not sure where the state of it at the minute because it's not something I deal with. But um, Ian, Ian Cooper, who is heads that open quest stuff, he's I know he's busy beavering away on um, different sorts of, sort of setting materials and, and uh, core rule sets, which I think are, are all coming out and starting to flow out. You know, over the next. Uh, uh, so it it wasn't it wasn't actually anything to do with the Hero Quest board game. It was something yeah. you to come up before, and it just sort of. Yeah, yeah, we had the name. and then they those guys liked the name so much they they wanted to use it as well. So ah, okay, I understand. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Did the I mean, obviously, Chaosium use their own rule system completely separate to the D and D system. But did the whole uh, issue with the D and D OGL license have any impact on yourselves at Chaosium? No. Okay, it was just you do you basically. We'll keep doing our own thing. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've been using BRP, our, our in-house system, basic role play, which is, I say, is a percentile system since the 70s. Yeah. So um, it was never part of the OGL. The only, I mean, the only the only connection with OGL happened with a, and it wasn't even part of the OGL. It was actually an agreement with Wizards of the Coast back in the day where they did a D20 version of call of cthulhu a single book oh yeah um, and uh, but that wasn't again part of the ogl that was a 
that was a licensed agreement for a single kind of D20 rulebook for Call of Cthulhu um, that kind of you know had its moment in the sun and then kind of faded away. Um, but no, so as I say, that wasn't attached to OGL and, and it's, we've not really been involved. The only thing we're involved in now is the kind of, we're, we're one of the companies kind of involved in the Orc open license, um, which obviously is still being developed and hasn't quite been finalized yet but um but we you know we wanted to kind of support that venture so um we have uh, we've been working with those guys to to you know to do that and when that finally kind of is released in that in that sense we 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 you know we aim to uh be part of that with a with a a, a version of our basic role play system which will be kind of part of that ogl in theory do you think so- do you think so, so. that um, Wizards of the Coast um, uh, and Hasbro have shot themselves in the foot with this? With that, as much as they've retracted everything, do you think that they've they've done irreparable damage to their to their to themselves? I, well, I don't think so. In terms of look at how many did everyone stop playing D anD D? No, we still play D anD D, but I, I'd say so I don't that's the answer. I, don't, I, don't, I mean, yeah. I don't think it's irreparable. I, I mean, I, I don't know. To, I'm not, is my answer? I, don't, I have no idea. I, may, maybe there is there are some people that have stopped playing D and D because of it, and maybe won't play it again. So there's yeah. a a loss there. But but in the vast majority of play, I don't see um, people that you know the people who enjoy D and D have stopped playing it. I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I could be wrong. But had, I, um, what was I'm it? What's up, comicbook.com? Welcome back to the studio. Comment, to be honest. Sorry, I put sorry. I, sorry, I had a video playing in the background, which completely confused me. I was like, somebody's shouting in the background. Um, <laughs> but you had like uh, obviously because uh, Critical Role have moved on to their own. Critical Role have moved on to their own. Um, uh, their own type of uh, system, I think, based off the back of the OGL, because they're like, well, if they're going to threaten this before, they're going to they, they might do it again, and we're not going to get caught in that in that shitstorm any further. Um, I. Personally, I think as much as like I I love I I play D and D and have been doing for, since there I have the red um the red one from sort of I'm not sure if, what edition was the red one uh, first edition is is red first edition yeah like so right. would it bring like I, I thought it was white D&D. yeah it's, a, <laughs> it's not a red but no there is the um I call it the purple box because it's what I bought it's yeah. a first Ooh. basic D and D set I bought with a kind of the one with the well it's no point me saying there's a dragon on the front because they all have a dragon on the front but it was then the red box came out yeah sorry yeah yeah i was gonna say because it was early 80s but it wasn't 80 81 i can't remember now maybe before yeah yeah and um so i've got fond memories of it and i didn't have any sort of kind of fight to pick with them especially since we started this new campaign we had with them uh with D and lot over covid and stuff but as soon as that sort of thing hit it sort of la- left a, a a suitably bad taste in my mouth and uh, i went from being indifferent to the company and just happy that they had this, there's this good game to being like is there ulterior motives to everything they're doing now? So I'm now every time something new comes up, I'm questioning it. Whereas I never used to question it, and now I'm just like, mm. and that I think that's where the sort of damage is maybe getting done. I guess in the end, if the people are still buying their games, but I'm not. I'm less likely to move to open D and D. I'm happy enough to stay at fifth edition now. Because that, that of- may be 
that may be the crunch. I mean, I, as I say, I'm not I'm not qualified or close enough to really know the answer. But I mean, I guess you know, for people that have spent you know invested already quite a considerable sum in in their their current edition books, and they're quite happy to you know get their value out of them and continue playing with them, if they find a situation where they 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 need to spend a lot more money on a new edition, then may, maybe that's a crunch that some will and some won't. I, I don't know. I mean. Obviously, like most role-playing games, when a new edition comes out, all your old editions immediately burn and you can't play them anymore. So that, I don't know. But Or maybe people would just carry on playing what they've always played with. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's true. Has COVID have any impact on KSCM or Call of Cthulhu in terms of playing in an uptake? Um, I think the overwhelming kind of impact was was what was felt by most of the industry in terms of that because people were stuck at home um, and once that novelty had worn off after like two hours they, they wanted to kind of do something and so um, online gaming um, you know while it was already existing and you know we were you know supporting online gaming and I was you know run online games for YouTube and stuff like that in, in times past but when COVID kind of happened, um, there was a real kind of upsurge in that across the board. And certainly with Call of Cthulhu, that was, you know, that included. So we saw many groups, you know, either, you know, uh, being rejuvenated through <coughs> or coming together through new online play and certainly, you know, online conventions. Um, you know, there, again, there have been one or two that kind of were happening fairly regularly each year and suddenly many online conventions uh, are happening and continue to happen which is brilliant it's not like well you know what you always kind of fear is that everyone starts playing online and then they're allowed out of the house so all of that dies but actually it doesn't seem to be the case you know people are kind of actually this is a really accessible way to you know meet with friends and play games and talk and and whatnot as well as meeting you know maybe once a week or once a month with some other friends face to face around the kitchen table like old times you know um so it's a nice balance of the both but certainly you know we saw um you know many people kind of starting off new campaigns for call of cthulhu finally an excuse to kind of run master of nalatha tep or horror on the orient express you know we've got a captive audience we can play and the spin-off from that has been then the massive increase in number of live plays um going on places like youtube and discord and so on where again there'd been some before but you know you've got groups who are videoing themselves and sharing it sharing the content on you know video platforms so um which is all you know marvelous stuff really so yeah i mean so it did affect us in that way in a very positive way i guess yeah, because I mean, I, I mean, I was doing, been doing some research into role playing like before, during, after COVID, and there was about March, April, twenty twenty, role playing just spiked. Yeah, and yeah, for the first time it was trending on Google. There'd been kind of gradual interest for the past ten years, and then just suddenly, interest in it shut up because people wanted that escapism that gaming and role playing games offered. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you know, any, and and also, you know, you got the you got the gamers who already had all the books, and you know, they were they were just wanted a way to play, and this was a way to play, but obviously, you've got a lot of people that weren't necessarily gamers at the time, or only kind of peripheral, 
who were kind of like, well, what is it? Now I've got a good opportunity, no excuse not to give it a go at least, and, and joined an online game and kind of found they liked it. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly found themselves running games and creating groups and videoing themselves and showing on YouTube. And I think, so it, I think it helped that obviously, um, uh, what's it called? Stranger Things was uh, a, a big help to sort of kind of RPGs as well because it sort of made them relatively cool in a, in, a, in a weird way especially that everybody's meant to be there are a bunch of nerds playing D&D well it's not my sister's for example is the, an, an example of this she has no bar being you know uh, playing some games when we were kids she had no real interest in board games or anything like that and her and a lot of the guys from our village back in Northern Ireland were talking about playing D&D after watching uh, Stranger Things and being in lockdown so it was like these two things sort of kind of well that's kind of cool maybe we should do that and they were sort of talking about it and it's just like that's weird because they would never have talked about it otherwise yeah it's, no, it's amazing that certainly Stranger Things has an effect and there's there have been other things subsequently i mean what always makes me laugh is uh, the et i mean maybe this could have happened like you know how how old is et you know, 20, 30 years ago could have happened then because they're playing dnd at the start of et but they didn't actually show it in the way that you know stranger Ding, stranger things you know really showed this is dnd miniatures and everything and where it's a kind of it's more of a by the side of the screen thing in, in the beginning of et but you just kind of think well maybe if they'd have kind of really you know, showing them enjoying it and what it was, who knows, we could have had this, you know, some strange kind of revolution 30 years ago, but I doubt it. But uh, it just makes me smile to think of uh, what could have been, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Where would we be now? Where would we be now? But there's also that whole satanic panic against gaming in the 80s as well, which is kind of really uh, a lot of bad press and, like, completely hypocritical. And that really kind of tarnished the perception of gaming for a long time certainly it certainly didn't help yeah Yeah. and i mean um one thing i want to ask as well is call of cthulhu is very much um especially the monsters is like like indescribable you never kind of really get a clear picture of what um one of the monsters is in a lovecraft text now given that only on virtual tabletop we have got like the the tokens everywhere how do you kind of recreate the indescribable when it's a visual a visual medium like like vtt's um well i i mean (laughs) again it depends on your style i mean me i wouldn't use tokens i would i would still use theater of the mind yeah on a video game because um well you know a tactical map can be sometimes useful for call of cthulhu it, it's far better to kind of show a floor plan of a of a you know you're, you're exploring some strange manor house or some you know crypt or something a kind of a you know a kind of a floor plan of that and at most kind of going well yeah you're in the bedroom and you're down in the kitchen whatever um is about as tactical it needs to be to be frank but um but i mean about some people like using tactical maps it helps them kind of visualize it better and that's cool i have no problem with that but i mean personally i wouldn't use a token but if they use tokens then i mean you can you know there are various monster tokens drawn and some of them look like the cthulhu mythos monsters and some of them are uh, and that's fine because they're pretty static and, you know, they're just representative. Representative, Obviously, you as the keeper can, your part of your job is to bring them to life and to make them not, 
you know, dull and a static token is make them living and breathing and terrifying in a sense uh, that your players are scared of them. They don't want to go near that token because it's far too scary. Um, so, I mean, that's part of the part and parcel of the job is, of the keeper is to kind of, you know, make what seems quite mundane and dull terrifying and scary and <laughs> you don't want to go near. Um, and that's, you know, that's still part of theatre of the mind in that sense in terms of how you are presenting the scenes, how you are presenting the monsters, how you are, you know, um, building on the senses of the player characters, what they not only can see, but what they can smell, what they can hear, what they can taste in the air, and what it feels like, you know, there's that kind of strange kind of slightly damp feeling that is covering your arms as you enter this room, you know, and you don't need to say there's a monster, you know, you, you, you give all these senses because that, you know, helps the player to kind of go, something's bad here. <laughs> it's, fu- this room. it's funny yeah, that you say. It's far more scary than a token sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, you use what works for you and your group. And if you use tokens, great, no problem at all. Not something I would, I use. I don't, I don't feel a need for them myself, but I can see why a lot of groups will find them useful. But again, once people, if they're coming from a different game that is very tactical, for instance, that does use tactical maps and tokens, and they come to Call of Cthulhu expecting the same game, it's sometimes useful to remind people that, you, you know, you play Monopoly and then you go and play Carcassonne, you don't use Monopoly's rules to play Carcassonne, they are different games, and Call of Cthulhu is a different game to perhaps the game you've been playing. So, you know, try and leave the old game behind and just try and embrace the new game with a you know a clear head in a sense and just see how it works and then bring in you know if there's useful <laughs> things you use in your old game that you think will work for your version of Call of Cthulhu then great bring them in but start off with a baseline of just see how the game is meant to be played before you kind of you know make assumptions that why we need a tactical map you don't need a tactical map well, like saying saying that, like uh, two things I want to because it, it, it amused me because actually I'll move on to that after. So the first thing is um, when I first started playing D anD D when I was very young, uh, the local one of the local boys, one of my friends, he used to be the DM, and we never we never used maps um, for D anD D. It was literally just pen and paper. And I remember watching some things on TV when Americans were playing and they had miniatures and they were on maps. I was like, what the hell are they doing? And you just play D&D, you just do it in your mind. You just sort of kind of, he tells you something, you say you're going to do something and that's what you do. So like when I started playing D&D, I do... I, I do. I, I prefer the the mind thing. I might have a picture of something on there to give a, a sort of view on what it is, and then people sort of kind of spin off that. Like if there's a battle or something like that, fine. I might I'll put a I'll put like tokens down, and people do that because that's seriously. I kind of like the ba- battle side of things, but you know, I'm very much like you know. Here's a picture of a city. What are you going to do around the city? And they sort of kind of you know make that up as they as they go along. Uh, but that being said, I think you have to be a good DM to, to make people engaged in that. And I'm not insulting my friend. It was just like when you said theater of the mind, um, again, during lockdown. So I think I was in, in about three different RPG games. And one of them was a Call of Cthulhu um, RPG that my friend wanted to run because he had not done it before. And so it was me, him, and uh, my mate Russell. And I think one other, and it was like Victorian Britain. 
And it was the most... And he's like, theatre of the mind, chaps, theatre of the mind, okay? And he gave us like a map of of London and, and then that was it. Uh, it was like... I was like an, an accountant or something and somebody else was like... Some, it was these really mundane, so like somebody was a, he was a chimney sweep. And it was just like, so what are you doing next? I'm opening the door. Uh, what are you doing next? I'm looking at a room and he's like, the room is dark. And we're like, okay, I don't... <laughs> it was like it was like literally day to day London job work and stuff, and we always take the piss out of him. It's like oh, I can't wait to play accountancy nineteen eighty <laughs> accountancy eighteen seventy five again because you know I like he was building up to something, but all we were getting was like you know we're walking around London and now and again something like you know we go oh you've had a bit of a. Uh, something something weird's happened and then you just sort of carry on doing your sort of kind of mundane London life thing. <laughs> we sure. just... yeah, I, I get it, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it comes down to, again to, um, you know, that kind of session zero where you kind of talk to players about the kind of game you imagine and you get their buy-in. So, yeah, that's the kind of game they want to play and they understand that it's going to be a slow burn style of game and it's going to be about, you know, little things happening at first and they're going to build over time. Um, you know, it's often best to kind of agree that with the players up front. <laughs> maybe that wasn't, maybe that was a set that was missed perhaps. And, yeah, uh, I think because it was new. It was new to it and yeah. stuff. And like, oh, yeah. I, like in the end, he had some like, it, it ended a bit weird. Uh, it was like, you're all fish people or something along those lines and stuff. And it was just like, uh, okay, so I'm an accountant who's just walked across London. Uh, something weird's happened to me in a pub. I've walked down a fork in a sewer and I've gone into a church and I've read a book and I've rolled a dice and something's happened and now I'm a fish person. <laughs> and that was it. So it was just like, all right, man. Okay, cool. Thanks. But we all, I mean, you know, when you're, you're not only um, learning a new system, you're helping other people to learn this new system as well, and you're GMing the scenario, and maybe it's a scenario you've, you've written yourself, it's a number of moving parts. And like any role-playing game, you know, you, you learn it. You, you get better as you do more. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you do need to do a bit more accountancy in London and, you know, get, <laughs> get a bit more, get a bit more built into it. Yeah. And maybe, you know, like, I, think if you'd, a different way. I don't know. If, I like that. I think if we'd, if we'd ha- maybe given it a bit more time, it was just because we did like two sessions and it was yeah. just sort of like a case of, I'm an accountant in London in 1875, sort of opening doors and not doing very much. And then it's just like, I went into a church and I did a thing and then I, I, you know, turned into a first person or something happened like that. And then I was just like, all right, okay. And I'm like, that wasn't like the original Call of Cthulhu game mm-hmm. I played. So I, yeah. I it, was- like, um, it kind of sounds like you were, you were actually playing like a sandbox and what you needed to do was a bit more of a directed play kind of story. Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. It, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was just you know. funny. Every time we asked about playing an RPG, we're like, oh, can I play, uh, can I play day job plumber today? <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's... <laughs> I think what Matt just said, reminds me of something like, no, there's been a lot of settings <laughs> for Call of Cthulhu. You've got like, no, the classic 1920s. You've got the modern day Delta Green. And I remember back, Back in the 90s, was there even like a Cthulhu pull, a crossover between Cyberpunk and Call of Cthulhu, which odd, but worked bizarrely. 
Sure, there's been, there's been a lot of kind of crossovers and, and different settings. In Delta Green, you're right, it started out as a kind of a modern day, uh, kind of an alternate setting, modern day for Call of Cthulhu, and now has, uh, over time, has kind of gone its own way and kind of developed its own rule system. And it's a standalone kind of game published by um, Pagan Publishing and Art Dream. But, um, but in terms of um, the lines we do, I mean, because you, humans are the you know and and the world around us is is um the kind of the primary setting for call of cthulhu it can take place in any kind of moment of history so we have as you say 1920s and monday tend to be the core kind of periods but we have um like the uh the old the american old west with a setting called down darker trails which is you know basically you know cowboys and, and so on uh, in the old west dealing with these sort of strange things happening um and likewise we have a kind of could, could you know um similar time period kind of victorian um gaslight cthulhu by gaslight which mainly takes place um kind of in that kind of england the, you know the victorian england however um you know can carry across the atlantic into the east coast and boston and new york of that period and then you can get on a horse or a train and head off and find yourselves in the old west. So we have kind of settings that kind of start in one and can kind of blend into others in that kind of um, you know eighteen hundreds kind of period. But equally, we you know we very recently released a um, a Regency Cthulhu book, which is actually kind of uh, inspired by Jane Austen. So kind of like and um, and what you know we we thought it was really cool because you, you've got. Not only the normal constraints of society as we understand them, you have the Regency era, era um, set of social constraints, you know, or being very polite all the time. And, you know, uh, and how do you keep all that composure when there's a Cthulhu mythos Shoggoth chasing you down a corridor kind of thing? So it kind of kind of butts up against that and, and creates some really interesting kind of and colourful role playing experiences. So so we have Regency as well. And um, there's a. Uh, what else? Dark Ages. So set in the kind of the uh, the kind of around about 1000 uh, AD and um, that kind of time in the kind of European and English history that's, you know, a bit fuzzy um, where you, you you know, there are there are any libraries. You know, there are a few books and then mainly held by monasteries and, and monks and so on. But there are any books elsewhere. So. In how you gather information in that game is slightly different. It's all about conversations and, you know, relationships and, and traveling to places and, and trying to find out stuff. But it's all, you know, and it plays off kind of ideas like folk horror really interestingly as well as, you know, uh, stuff with, you know, the Vikings coming in and raiding Glastonbury and all the um, Lindisfarne even. Um, and so on. So you've got all those kind of things going on, which kind of, again, create interesting stories that are slightly different to what you would find in a 1920s setting. That could be so, interesting. Yeah. That could be quite interesting. Um, yeah, so I mean, it, and, and so that's, uh, for me, it's always been the beauty of Call of Cthulhu. It's like, if there's a particular period of history that you like, well, you could run Cthulhu. I mean, we've got another book called Reign of Terror, which is set during the French Revolution, which is, a, you know, a, a, an epic and horrific backdrop for a horror game. Um, so um, and again, so you know, if you're if you've got a particular interest in, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a moment in history, you know. Um, I know Medivius are doing a Roman board. Are these a board game, Pete? They're doing a Cthulhu Roman board game one, or something. Yeah, 
Yeah. yeah. That'll be quite um, a good era. World War Two um, and Cthulhu. Uh, so on. There was Action Cthulhu that Modifius did under license, and now do their own kind of version of. And we've got um, uh, World War Cthulhu, which is uh, which originally published and developed by Cubicle Seven, who uh, we've now kind of acquired that. So we're kind of redeveloping that material. Nice. Ooh, that'd be now good. That'd be good. Two as well. So and, it's it's yeah. World War Cthulhu, sort of like World War Three, but with Lovecraft and no. Cthulhu. Oh. Yes and no. World War Cthulhu is, if you imagine, like a the the name of the line. So it yeah. deals with kind of Cthulhu in war times. So the actual core setting is Darkest Hour, which is actually set during World War Two, where you are basically kind of very similar to the SRE, Special Operations Executive, doing these yeah. secret missions, missions within missions. So go over, go over to France and blow up those dams. While you're there, can you get into the church and steal the Necronomicon? Kind oh, of. That sounds really good. So, so, that sounds so good. Kind of, you know, secret operation missions within within World War Two, uh, but also uh, Cubicle Seven did, and you know we're developing as well. Is a kind of a what they call Cold War Cthulhu, which is basically nineteen seventies spies and espionage. That kind of Cold War kind of vibe, where you've got you know different agencies and cults and sinister things going on. Um, and it's a kind of covert war that's happening as well. So that's uh, a kind of a, a different kind of variation on that as well. And originally, Cubicle Seven had planned to do like a like a World War Three kind of thing. That never actually happened. Right. Um, but you know, there's still potential down the road for something like that, perhaps. If there's a if there's an interest in those kind of things, I suppose it can slot in. It can slot in anywhere, really. Can't yeah. That's yeah. From, yeah. I mean, your comment about kind of spies and Cthulhu kind of echoes um, Charlie Strasser's The Laundry Files. Sure, and there was a, there was a version of uh, there was a game yeah, called good. Laundry Files published by Cubicle Seven some time ago, um, uh, which they used the. Um, it wasn't directly Call of Cthulhu, but it was part of the basic role play, Kazan's basic role play system. Uh, they kind of licensed that to use for the game, uh, but then decided not to renew that. So. I think that game's out of print now, but that was Cubicle Seven's decision. Um, but yeah, there is some commonality. Obviously, there's you know, uh, there's plenty of um, mythos authors, you know, yeah. uh, who have touched on it in some way, uh, like you know, like Charles Stross and so on. And um, there's plenty of kind of really cool ideas out there in terms of fiction that people sometimes you know are inspired by when they're designing their own you know scenarios and so forth. And there's been so many different kind of authors. No, it's no longer just H.P. Lovecraft that's doing the Cthulhu Mythos. Well, it was H.P. Lovecraft, even when he was alive. Yeah, you had... Uh, with many, many other writers. And so pretty much from the word go, the kind of the sense of what we now call the Cthulhu Mythos was a collaborative thing that went way beyond Lovecraft. You know, he, he actually contributed quite... When you add up... The contributions by other authors like Ramsey Campbell and, yeah. and August Aleth and, and you know uh, more contemporary people as well. Um, they've written far more than Lovecraft ever wrote. You know, although Lovecraft may have coined the term, well, he didn't coin the term Cthulhu Mythos, but but he coined you know Cthulhu and so on and Necronomicon. Um, it's really just the the seeds in the ground. They've they've grown and blown, bloomed into these very imaginative and creative kind of endeavors done by many people across the years. Not only not only in fiction, but also in the game itself. You know, the Call of Cthulhu game has brought so much more to 
the you know the material yeah. than and than Lovecraft ever kind of originally you know came up with himself. So yes, he's the original creator and the so on. But we can we don't have to be um, um, you know you don't have to belabor that you know our indebtedness to him. We're indebted that you know he came up with a really cool idea of Cthulhu and the kind of the ideas around the mythos. But you know there's many other authors who have contributed to. The Call of Cthulhu game and the wider fiction that comes under the umbrella of cosmic horror that, um, you know, that we don't really have to, you know, worry too much about Lovecraft now in that sense, because he is a problematic character. And, and, yeah, yeah. Yes, and, uh, <laughs> yeah so there, there, are, there are far, far more, um, you know, mythos, mythos authors who, um, you know, aren't racist and have problems we have problems with um, that we can enjoy. Uh, and get ideas from and, and work with and so um it's that's you know that's one of the you know one of the good things he did was to open the work up and be collaborative and that was that was a great thing that he did um, um and um so that allows so many other people to kind of you know build on that and take it in different directions in very different directions nowadays um, which is really cool you know with some really interesting takes on you know cosmic horror yeah because i mean there's also been like different i say different flavors and takes on the cosmic horror approach for example uh brian lumley and his titus crow novels look very different to lovecraft yeah 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 i think it's um lumley once said like my characters fight back and they have a laugh yeah 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 i mean brian i think brian was an ex ex-military chap so he's yeah. used to kind of the idea of a bit more in the robert e howard mold of the heroes have fists too yeah. kind of thing um but you know you've got um uh matt ruff and lovecraft country which obviously was made into a tv series not that long ago you know exploring you know uh, racial prejudice and tensions and stuff in the 1920s and beyond um which is you know really interesting work as well as being you know actually kind of you know um what's the word, um, kind of tossing Lovecraft into touch almost the same way, you know, is a reaction to that kind of stuff that he was talking about back in his day is to kind of, you know, re-explore this. And we've got, you know, other authors, uh, Victor Laval, uh, The Ballad of Black Tom, re- you know, looking at, you know, looking at the myth obviously, with, with new, new eyes, really. And so, you know, that's really interesting and, and good and, and, you know, different different creative imaginations coming from different different people um, is the lifeblood of any kind of, you know, kind of creative endeavour, really. Nice, nice, nice. And where do you go from here? I mean, like I say, it's, like, it's been going for 40 years and you've got this massive wealth of material that people can draw upon. As you say, it's like it's, you know, they can pick up a first and second edition book and it's, you can still use it with the seventh. Where does Call of Cthulhu go from here? Um, it just gets more tentacly, really. <laughs> and that, and, uh, I mean, you know, there are <coughs> things with a game that's 40 years old is there are a number of kind of older scenarios and materials which are kind of considered classics in some sense. You know, with your rose-tinted spectacles on, they, they, you know, they are kind of, oh, you know, when will you republish those? And so it's very much a balancing act because I, you know, Call of Cthulhu could very easily become just like a greatest hits machine, where you only yeah. kind of publish stuff that's already been printed. Um, I'm very reluctant to do that. I, I like to have a balance of things, so we cherry pick 
some of the really cool old stuff and we kind of give it a new lick of paint, new artwork, we re-edit it, develop it a bit more, maybe add some bonus material in. And so uh, so we put it out, you know, as part of the line and that's really cool. And we did that with uh, the Mask of Nelathotep campaign and Horror Island Express and uh, Mansions of Madness and so forth, some of these old classic books. Um, but equally, you know, we're putting out just as many brand new books because it's important that, you know, it's still a living, breathing game that's got new ideas and new lifeblood in it to kind of, you know, for people to enjoy. So, you know, we've just put out a campaign called The um, a Time for Harvest and we put a scenario collection out, which was uh, Nameless Horrors, where it's all about different scenario, one-shot scenarios that deal with monsters that have never been shown before. They kind of, they literally are unknown horrors. Um again to to kind of you know show a var- you know variations on the gaming table so it's it's very much um so many things i have so many books that you know are in the pipeline i don't even have to think about a new one to be frank <coughs> i mentioned call of cthulhu by gaslight we're currently finishing up and working on the new edition of that for seventh edition so that will be a new kind of uh, a new edition of Gaslight for Call of Cthulhu for that kind of Victorian era style of play. Um, we've also got the whole kind of um, Arkham Country, so um, the kind of the uh, the original kind of home of the mythos in terms of that kind of New England um, town of Arkham and Innsmouth by the Sea and Kingsport and the, the Dunwich Horror, all these kind of locations in that in that Essex County area. Um, you know, there was a series of books that came out many years ago that kind of created like a sandbox setting for those places. And I've been revisiting those. And we've got the first one, which is uh, all about Arkham, which is a, probably the most comprehensive um, sandbox and book on Arkham that's been done anywhere, anywhere at any time. You know, detailing the, the locations, the NPCs and full of scenario seeds and secrets and things. So you can base a whole campaign there and do a very much, a, you know, a sandbox style campaign or just use as a backdrop for, you know, for scenarios you already have. Um, so we've got that coming out as well. I mean, Arkham is such a fantastic setting and it's so iconic. I mean, you say Arkham and people just know exactly what you mean. I mean, there's such a rich texture to that whole setting that people just keep, keep, keep coming back to it, as you say, for the fact there's yep. a, Opal City. Hell, I want to call my house Arkham. My wife <laughs> won't let me. She's banned me from renaming the house. But I still one day I'll, want, I'll call it Arkham. Sure. I mean, obviously, and, and, and you know, Arkham was created back in the 20s by Lovecraft. And obviously, since then, it's kind of developed and gone many different shapes and places. You know, there's, a, there's the Arkham of Batman, which is a completely different thing. Um, and uh, there's the the Arkham of Call of Cthulhu, the tabletop role-playing game, and then there's Arkham of the board games, and there's... It's a horrible board game. I've never yeah. won that game. <laughs> I've played the board uh, game twice it's and Call lost Cthulhu. twice. You're not meant to win. Yeah. What's really nice is the, the Arkham book that I've been, I've been writing and working on is, is very much kind of Chaosium's Call of Cthulhu version of Arkham. This is, you know, our version of Arkham. This is what we think it looks like. This is how it works in the game. And this is how it can fuel the game in terms of your characters and, and growing them and developing them and uh, and building, you know, plots and adventure and so forth. So that's really exciting. So, uh, yeah, Arkham is just evocative. You've got Miskatonic University in there with yeah. its popular Necronomicon. You've got the Restricted Collection. You've 
you know, strange graveyards with wandering things and ghouls living in the tunnels and other things as well. And there's so much potential and then so much in there that you can go a whole variety of things. Not, not even to mention this secretive witch coven of Arkham, you know, and uh, and so on. So there's, there's a million and one plots uh, and, you know, you only need one or two for your group. So there's plenty to choose from uh, and take in the direction that you want. So that's so I'm very excited about that particularly. Um, but we've got, you know, other campaigns and brand new campaigns, a new brand new campaign for, for Gaslight called The Curse of Seven. We're developing new settings as well. So we bought out Regency not that long ago, but we've got some other cool kind of far out settings, if I can say that, that... Um, uh, which will be really exciting to get out eventually. Uh, and we've got lots of books in development. You know, we've got a lot of books written. We're in the pipeline and we've still got lots of books being written as well because Cthulhu is a, you know, it's a big game. It's a very exciting kind of game. And, and, and there's, and it's, but it's a very broad church, you know. And so we're trying to find the bits that interest people here. And there'll be another kind of thing that we'll release that interests a group of people over there. You know, they're not necessarily going to all like the same kind of thing all the time. So, you know, we, we vary it up to kind of ensure that, you know, we're hopefully hitting something you know, that at least everyone likes something of, you know, in, in the course of our, you know, kind of release schedules. So, you know, as well as things like Alone Against, you know, we do the series of solo Call of Cthulhu books where you don't need a group of players. You just play yourself. And uh, and they're really popular. And again, they were popular in lockdown and they continue to be popular uh, and so we're looking to continue to kind of, you know, build on that line of books to create more opportunities. I mean, we find that people do play them on their own, but they also play them as a group. You know, we find people, you know, couples play them together or a couple of friends will meet up or they play online and just play a choose your own style adventure together when, you know, and, you know, agree on whether they go left or right kind of thing when they get to the path. And we've had whole groups of people, you know, we play it as a group, you know, we all sit down we all sit around one of us reads it out and we all as a group decide you know whether we follow the man in the woods or whether we run off to the bar and ask questions there or whatever it is so that's a you know that's an interesting and different style of playing the game but you're playing the game still so there's lots of opportunities uh, and it's what i'm trying to say that that's what that's what uh, excites me about the game and um and that's what we're trying to kind of develop and bring out in terms of what the future of the game is, is lots of really cool things to do, some of which will hopefully you'll think are cool too. That's that's what our plan is. One thing I really liked was the your Call of Cthulhu starter set you released about, I think about five years ago. Yeah. And um, yeah, one of my friends picked it up because they, they would just get, they've been playing role-playing games, but they really wanted to run one of their own. And they picked that up. And I think what made it for me was that it was great introduction, but also there was loads of kind of like maps and handouts and tactile things, which you know, for a reasonable price, like the, of a, a night out. Yeah. It well, was there, yeah. all there for you. Uh, about 20, 25 quid, depending yeah. on where you're, you are in the world and where you're buying it from. But the, the whole intention was to create a, a starter box set that was literally a starter box set. So you maybe have never role played before. You certainly haven't played Call of Cthulhu before. And by opening this box, we could get you to understand the game, understand the rules of the game, understand how to play the game, and understand how to run the game for friends and family, you know, other people. So that's why 
the first book you open, within two pages, you are playing the game with a solo adventure that teaches you the rules of the game and gets you to roll up a character while you're doing it before you need to do anything else. Yeah. And so you know, my, whole, my, my whole idea was that um, the last thing you do, you bought this box set, you get home and you want to do something with it and you open it and realise, oh, I need a set of role-playing dice. They aren't in the box. What, where, do I, where do I get them? So dice are in the box. Um, and you know, I want to do something with the game, but I, but I I need to get what three or four friends around. I, I, but I want to do something tonight. You can start playing immediately by playing the solo adventure. And so the whole point was to kind of lower any barriers to kind of just giving this game a go. Because ultimately, what I wanted people to do was give it a go, and then they could decide: is this a game I want to do more of, or? You know, I've got my value out of playing the stuff in the box, but it's not really for me. It, I, you know, something else is for me, but you've learned that and that's cool. Um, but I just wanted a way that people could try the game out, learn the game and, and feel confident in running the game for somebody else. And so, you know, you get the solo, you get three of the scenarios that kind of guide your new keeper, your new GM through how to run the game and as you say you've got a rule set in there as well the kind of core rules of the game including character generation and as well as that as you say there are handouts and maps that are all part of the scenarios already done for you so it's, it's as lower bar as entry as we could get it and um, um, you know um, it's been very encouraging to see the reviews of the box set that people have been very enthusiastic about it very complimentary so that's that was very uh heartening uh, uh to see that hopefully the box is doing what it's meant to do which is be a starter set and without any kind of um need to get anything else to play with you know it, yeah. does, it does everything you need for for a good while so yeah excellent excellent um how did you how did you find uh uk games expo by the way Oh, good. I mean, Expo's, uh, you know, it's quite a big show these days, isn't it? For uh, for the UK, it's, uh, you know, I think other than Salute, it's you know, probably one of our largest games shows. And certainly it's the most diverse in terms of it being tabletop role playing and board games and a little bit of electronic stuff as well and card games and war, uh, war games as well. So it's a real kind of eclectic mix of a bit of everything, which is really cool to see. And it's nice that this year seemed to be um, we finally seem to be over the kind of COVID thing, whereas in previous, the last couple of expos have been very kind of, you know, been smaller, less well attended because there's still been, you know, the kind of overhang of COVID. Uh, and this seemed to be the first one that that started to kind of fade into the background a little bit uh, in that, you know, there are more people there. It yeah, Saturday very, was really busy. Very busy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, on the Chaosium stand, we, we, we have a, we have a booth. We've had a booth there for a number of years, and, and um, we were really busy. We were really busy on Friday, really busy on the Saturday, um, and uh, we were so busy we pretty much sold out of everything by wow. <laughs> by the end of Saturday. We had a few bits left on Sunday, but uh, the majority of our stuff had gone. You know, the the new um, Rivers of London role playing game, which you know, oh, we've, we've had uh, better better ben yeah, yeah, we've had him on the podcast. Oh, fantastic! So you know all about it. So I mean, yep. you know, we had. We had Ben on the stand signing copies of the Rivers of London role-playing game. And, of course, the day that Ben's there, we, we sold those out <laughs> within a few hours. Yeah. You know, so which which was great. You know, so uh, so we had, we had a really good show. And as ever with gaming shows, it's nice not only to just 
you know, see the people come up to the stand, have conversations, and and, and that lot. It's also you know, meet up with old friends as well. You only see at conventions and so on. So so it's a it's a nice uh, a nice thing for that. So uh, yeah, I, I had a great time. Did you uh, you both have a good time there? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Sat- Saturday was hammered. Uh, like we went. Um, so we've 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 gone bar the the lockdown year. I think we we've we've been going for a while and. Uh, I think this last year we went and we had this like we're going to interview everybody we can and we 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 did interviews with all like loads of people and just people aren't interested in, in these in, in all these interviews and so so we went different plan this time round we're just going to talk to people we're going to get them say like we do a podcast you're more than welcome to come on if you want to and talk to it and stuff and then we did a bit more and we, and we find that a lot easier going I took a lot of photographs and stuff and um, yeah Saturday was hammered to the point where when we walked around on the Sunday, I was like, I didn't see this yesterday because there's obviously a wall of people everywhere around it and stuff. But um, yeah, I love it. Like it's 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 by far one of my favorite, uh, if not my favorite convention in the UK, um, just for its diversity and the fact that it changes every year. It's not like you go to these normal conventions and and it's like it's just the same stuff over and over and over again always changes there's always different stuff obviously there's lots of different new games been coming in and coming up it's very dangerous for my wallet um but uh you yeah. leave your credit card behind yeah, yeah. i was very I good i was very good this year um i i only bought one thing this year um i've got it here actually kingmaker uh the second oh, I, yeah i <laughs> I nearly bought that. I grew up on my first ever war game experience with my father was playing the original version of Kingmaker from the, the 70s. And yeah. I remember he brought it out. Like my mom wanted to play like Monopoly or Ludo or something. My dad's like, hi about Kingmaker. And so <laughs> me and my brother and sister and stuff were playing like this game. And I just have this memory. Like it's really vivid memory of playing Kingmaker. And then I was just walking around with Pete. And I went, holy shit kingmaker i was like that's like one of the first ever war games i ever played in my entire life as a kid and they had a new version of it so i was just like i'm gonna have to get a copy of it and stuff so yeah. i did someone got a copy I, of I it for the show but I'm, I'm probably gonna end up picking up a copy as soon as i can <laughs> yeah <laughs> i got a point i was on youtube looking up all the different rule types and what how things have changed and stuff i was like all right okay cool right well, what's really cool about it without going on the length about it is that there's the they've got the original game in there yeah yeah and the board over, and it's the streamlined modern version of the game. Which yeah, is like, yeah, and they've got a, they've got additional things as well, so you can add in. So they've got they had all these different versions of it that they uh, they it sort of came out in sort of afterwards, and they've got them all rolled into one and the stuff. I was looking through it all, and I was just like, man, the nostalgia in this game is absolutely <laughs> just that's that's half the thing, isn't it? It's like, you know. I often think about the rose-tinted spectacles we all wear as gamers. You know, <laughs> the, the games we played and those memories of some of those bo- early board games or role-playing sessions or that that particular D&D module that you know is a bit crap, really, but you had a great time playing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, you, you think of it fondly, you know, so that's, you know, that's, that's part of the hobby in a sense, you know, and, th- and there will be you know, newer players now who will look back on, you know, the things we're doing now and uh, that will be... That's what they'll be looking back at with the rose tinted spectacles, and they'll open it in twenty years' time, going, "Yeah, it's not as good as I remember." <laughs> that's fine. That's how. That's how we. That's how we are, isn't it? Yeah, so. it's like you go back through all those, like, uh, like I went back to the first thing called Arcade Club in Bolton, not Bolton in. Uh, uh, 
Oh God, Barry. Is it Barry? Uh, Barry. Barry, yes. And Barry. And so it's got three floors of retro arcade games and stuff like that. And I'm just like, <laughs> you pay a tenner and you can have all these free arcades. So there's three floors and, you know, being a kid, a child of the 80s and stuff, I'm like, oh my God, it's going to have like, Turtles. It's going to have Robocop. It's going to have Street Fighter. It's going to have all these things. So you go in <laughs> and you play all these games like Turtles. Like me, I remember very specifically me and my brother begging my father for like i think we put 20 quid into this machine just to complete it and stuff and then playing it and go oh my god there's no skill involved in this game whatsoever you're literally pressing one button it's and, yeah, it's gra- and you look back at it and you go hi was i so into this game and it's just like oh, even right. the nostalgia yeah. of it's just like i i like it because of the nostalgia but it's not really a good game is it I don't know. I mean, I, I, I mean, for me, my, my, I think my favourite old school video game in, that you find in an arcade is probably still Defender oh, because it's so hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I love Defender, but so uh, if I saw that in a, a machine somewhere, then I, I kind of feel obliged to at least pay, you know put a quid in and play a game <laughs> like there's sort there are some good games like from back in the day and they're still as good as they are and stuff there's just a bit more sort of uh there's not a lot to them like the you know your golden no, axes no, 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 yeah and you can tell a lot of them were there just to get money off kids and you can like i i i, I vividly remember in the airport waiting for you know waiting for a plane and literally running up my dad would give me and my brother a pound and we go up and we play and then we die we'd run up to him again can we have another pound because we're nearly there and we and we, we eventually completed the game but it was like, i don't know how much money we spaffed into that and it was <laughs> it wasn't any skill on our behalf whatsoever it was just the amount of money that we put in that game that let us go I, I remember i remember the very <laughs> time i saw the original space invaders because i was wow young at the time. <laughs> and and it was like i mean I, I didn't know it existed i just discovered it in a you know a bar or cafe i think while we we're on holiday in europe at the time and um and it was like put coins into the machine and without knowing anything you know you pretty quickly work out you move the man left or right. You shoot the aliens, or they shoot you. That's it. And <laughs> it's really addictive. And yeah, yeah, that, yeah. you know that. I mean, that still that blew me away when when I discovered that. And um, perhaps one of the reasons why I'm into gaming is you know that kind of like trying something cool and new and kind of getting blown away by it, whether it's a board game, video game, or a role playing game. You know, it kind of keeps us going, isn't it? That's why we we kind of get into this strange hobby we're in. You know. Yeah, and it is the memories. I think it's certain, and I think it's like I I have fond memories of playing D and D with my like even at very young age, uh, like six or seven and stuff. They even being sort of kind of my friend set up his own team, and I was a cleric, and I've got like I can a very strong images in my head and i can't remember very much from back then but like i've got off the table and us sitting there and doing this thing and playing um as you know and then going back with this book and sort of trying to sort of like oh this is and it was for me i'm just like i want my character to be awesome so i was giving myself all this cool gear and like wagons to carry all my my loot mm-hmm. and all this other stuff and because like people weren't playing with me so i was just kind of playing with myself and said well he would do this and he would do this and i was making my own thing up afterwards and it's just like yeah, these strong memories of these games, and I think that's what it's all about. He's like, oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we, we, whatever, whatever hobby you're into, whether it's train spotting, bird bird watching, you know, role playing games or football, you know, there, there are shared experiences. You know, one of the reasons we do 
have these hobbies. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of solo hobbies, but even still, especially with that, you're still communicating with other hobbyists yeah. in some way. Um, but there is these shared kind of experiences or, or memories that you take back that, that kind of inform you and then that you look on fondly and, 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 and they enrich you know your experience in that in that way and, and and certainly for gaming because it's a very social enterprise you have these common you know war stories memories that you share with people that you know you suddenly bump into someone at a role-playing convention that you gamed with when you were 12 and you haven't seen them since but you've got an instant connection because oh crikey it's you do you remember yeah. when yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, was chat- you know, yeah. Yeah. I was chatting with dr megan cornell uh the author of uh tabletop uh, role play therapy and we talk about like how um the events in a role-playing game have an autobiographical sense to them where we know they are fiction we know it did not happen in reality but the way we kind of um ex- explain what happens we don't say it my character did this. Did, I did, I that. did this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. Do you remember when we slew that? Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of like a shared experience, even though it didn't happen. But within the reality of the game, it did happen to us. Sure, but it's a, but you did share the experience of the experience. It's kind of an experience. Within yeah. Experience. And so it's a very it's very valid in that sense. Yeah. While you weren't actually standing around casting fireballs at something, you were describing it, and you were reacting to it and rolling dice to make it happen so it it still has a kind of certain sense of validity in in that kind of shared experience which you know which is it's like going to say when, when do you remember when we watched the first lord of the rings film or whatever it might <laughs> be you know whatever had an impact on you and your friends or family at the time that you saw you know as a shared experience you you talked about it i've just got a friend i went to school with who um i hadn't seen for many years and I saw him last year, and um, he reminded me of the time we we hired Jaws on video cassette to watch at home, which was like a, a new thing. <laughs> uh, how daring were we to watch Jaws? Oh, well, you know, and that's a that's a shared experience that you know only me and him have, but it's a you know still valid in in that sense of um, being part of our collective history, and it's the same with. You know the games we play sometimes want you know that kind of stick in our memories for some reason normally because we did something stupid as a character or whatever you know we died in such a horrible way that it that it's kind of now fun you know when, when your character got eviscerated by the shoggoth or whatever it might be that's that's one thing i think kids kids these days are, are going to miss out on they're never going to be able to go into a video store and rent a video and that whole experience like we used to do it every weekend um every saturday uh my family would rent a new video my dad was massively into his sort of arnold schwarzenegger films and stuff so it was like commando or you know predator or something like that even though we were probably too young for it, he's like we're gonna watch this film it was always a schwarzenegger film or something or a total recall or something and we go in and we go in and we'd run around looking at all the different videos me and my brother probably trying to look at the videos we probably shouldn't be looking at and stuff and uh and so can we have this no no you can't have that video and stuff and then maybe get some ice cream from the little ice cream thing and just the experience as a family going to get a video was great and you know you don't get that anymore you don't have that you know you just sure. don't you just don't things, things change so i mean yeah. we we don't have the experience of gathering around as a family to listen to the radio because that was our only source of entertainment yeah we yeah. don't have that anymore but there, that, that was a thing and we moved society changes but there's always something 
there's always something that brings us together whether it's sitting around the tv or sitting in front of the screen to watch whatever streaming tonight or whatever whatever it is you know or we gathering to play a game of yeah board game or role playing game or a computer game even because we're playing it on the online across you know i've got two sons who um you know don't live anywhere near me these days but we sometimes get together and we shoot zombies together because <laughs> you know it's, we can you know we wouldn't have been able to do that many years ago so you know things do change and sometimes you know change isn't always good but you know we get variations on the theme and so you know i often think back to that kind of like time when radio was the new thing and how different it was for people that had nothing before that you know and uh you know ever since then we've had this kind of evolution of entertainment in a way and it's interesting to see how that's that's progressed but we're still doing this we're still engaging with it in, in almost the same way it's still kind of together and telling stories about it do you let your kid like because right we used to play in a clan with my dad and he refused to let us call him dad when we were online with him and stuff don't call me dad do you let your kids call you dad when you're playing games with yeah them? i mean yeah it's whatever no, normally they're apologizing for me yeah <laughs> badly like yeah, i remember one time we played i was playing counter-strike online with him. Oh, i had not played counter-strike for years you know i played it when it first came out I've not played it for years, and it's so changed now that there's all this in-game speak that I don't know what's going on, and I'm just running around doing my thing, shooting anything that moves. And they're apologizing. Yeah, you just have to forgive me. He doesn't know the rules. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of my depth now. I have yeah, to give yeah, it. yeah, yeah. I, the thing is, like, we used to play. Like my dad had a, um, he had a, a clan. They're still technically going called OAP, called the Overage Players, and. Uh, it was like all like sort of like his age and they'd all play games. He had, I've got two sons. Oh, why don't you come in? So me and my brother playing, play him in. And obviously my brother was a lot better than a lot of them. So they, they then ticked him very well because he was beating all these old fogies. He'd sort of been playing these games at, at a sort of kind of normal pace. And then he comes in, the damn kids, you know, sniping them all in the head on Battlefield <laughs> 2 and stuff. And it's just like, not, I mean, the thing is he wouldn't let us call him. You got to call me Target. So, all right, Dad. He's like, no, it's Target. Come, call me Target. <laughs> marvellous. Yeah, marvellous indeed. Right, okay. Um, before we go, have you got... Uh, is there anything coming up for you guys? Have you got anything on the ship? Uh, anything anything new to, to, to pimp out? Or? I'm really just... I mean, we've got we've got a bunch of new things coming out, the dribbling kind of dribbling out between now and, and next year in terms of stuff we're... We've got it in the pipeline currently. I mean, the biggest thing in terms of Chaosium generally is what's coming out next that's really exciting is the Pendragon starter set. So that's um, Arthurian, you know, uh, King Arthur's Britain. You're playing kind of, you know, knights, chivalry, running around, dealing with crazy monsters and, 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 and ethical dilemmas and so forth. Um, it's fantastic. It's a fantastic. I mean, if you if you got any interest in in the kind of lore of King Arthur and, and all of that and, and Merlin and so on, um, the game really kind of digs well into that in a really accessible way. Um, so we've got a, a brand new kind of starter set for that game coming out very soon. So that's really exciting because, again, that starter set's packed with really cool stuff and handouts and maps of England and, and so forth. Um, so that's very exciting. Uh, but the main thing is what I was going to say was, um, other than that, is um, really just join uh, the Chaosium mailing list. You just go to chaosium.com, chaosium.com, 
uh, there's a free mailing list join it and you get our ab chaos newsletter and basically once a month you'll get an email and it'll just tell you everything you need to know what's coming out what cool events happening what you can kind of get involved with if you want to and so forth and that's really the easiest and best way or just check out the casium facebook page or twitter feed the usual places and uh, you will hear all about all the cool stuff we've got coming out so awesome. that's what we should do Awesome, awesome, awesome. Right, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Uh, for me, I've been Matt Geary. With me has been Peter Allison. Good night, everyone. And Mike Mason. Good night. Thanks very much. Bye. <laughs>